Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. 1 Timothy 6, 20. We continue our introduction to Genesis. Last week was the introduction to the introduction to the introduction of Genesis. This week is the introduction to the introduction of Genesis. Next week, we're getting really close to actually exegeting Genesis. We want to lay a good foundation before we get to Genesis and then build upon it, exegeting chapter and verse all the way to the end of the 50th chapter. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. We'll lay the foundation for the opening of this morning's message. And this introductory series is not an expositional series. It is a biblical study series and a biblical defense of the truth of Genesis. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Precious Truth, written by the Apostle Paul to young Pastor Timothy. The close of the first pastoral epistle, written to every pastor, and thus to every church. Every pastor is charged with this same charge from the Apostle Paul, inspired of the Spirit of God. O Timothy! Exclamation point. So you must understand that I hear it like this. O Chuck! This is a message to your pastor and to every pastor, and thus every church. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. My job along with being an under-shepherd, guarding the flock of the Lord, feeding the flock of the Lord, the Word of God. But my job is to be like a sheepdog, guarding the Word of God itself. Guard what was committed to your trust. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, or another word for knowledge, Science. Avoiding. If you're going to guard what was committed to your trust, if you're going to guard the faith once we're all committed to the saints, if you're going to guard the gospel of Jesus Christ built on the foundation of Genesis, you must avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The what? Profane and idle babblings. That's what they are. Every thought, every opinion, every statement, every article, every video, every book, every message, every theory, every so-called science that is contrary to the Word of God is but profane and idle babbling. It is knowledge falsely so-called and must be rejected as such. By professing it, some have strayed. By professing what? The truth trusted to Timothy? No, by professing the profane and idle babblings, the false knowledge, some have strayed concerning the faith. 
I will say 1 Timothy 6.20 is universally true. It's the Word of God. Of course, it's true. But it is specifically true when it comes to those idle babblings that assault Genesis, the book of origins, the foundation of our faith. There have been more men and women led astray from the faith, led astray from Christ, led astray from salvation, led astray from heaven to the fires of hell by those teachings, those doctrines, those theories, those sciences, falsely so-called, that oppose God's historic account in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 than any other profane, idle babblings of men ever conjured in the heart, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. This has been the most effective false knowledge, false science, profane, idle babbling of man at undermining faith and leading men to destruction, leading men to hell. All of creation cries out the glories of God. As Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day at her speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out into all the earth and their words to all the world. And thus all mankind is accountable for that natural revelation through creation. As Romans 1 says, They have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness because God has made His glory, His Godhead even, visible, known to them through his creative work. His omnipotent power and his omniscience, his knowledge, his wisdom are on display everywhere, everywhere. And yet men suppress that display of God's glory, God's wisdom, God's power, even God's character, it says in Romans 1. They suppress it in unrighteousness actively. That is the result of the sin nature raging within them to reject that which they see and that which they understand and that which they know because they love their sin and they hate the God who would hold them accountable for it. We expect that to some level from non-believers who have not been exposed to the Word of God, who have never professed to be believers in God, in Jesus Christ, and the Holy Scriptures. But then there are those that come to the Word of God. They say they believe it. They say they believe the God thereof. They say they believe upon Jesus Christ. And yet, they join the atheists in their worldview against the foundation of Holy Scripture. They join them in their profane and idle babbling. They join them in their false knowledge. Their false science. And in these opening introductory messages to Genesis, I am laboring to free you from such influence, to protect you, to guard you from such influence. As I am commanded to guard the doctrines of the faith, the holy scriptures, the truth therein, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and as I'm charged elsewhere to guard the flock, I must lay a solid foundation for believing Genesis from the very first chapter and very first verse, or perhaps to say it better, I must lay a foundation for believing God for the very first chapter 
and from the very first verse, of his revelation of himself, and to remind you that it is audacious. It is bold sin. It is brazen pride to disbelieve God from his first word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's incredibly inconsistent and hypocritical to then later in the Gospels claim to now believe him. Only which portion we saw from last week's message, and if you weren't here, you should go back and listen. Which portion of the Gospels do you believe? Because through and through the Gospels, Jesus attests to the historicity of Genesis. He attests to Adam and Eve being historical figures, the first man and first woman created at the beginning. He attests to a literal Noah, a literal ark, and a literal worldwide flood. He upholds a literal Lot and a literal Lot's wife who was turned to a pillar of salt. He upholds a literal Sodom and Gomorrah. He upholds Genesis in total. And thus, if you bend your knee to Jesus Christ and confess Him as Lord, you bend your knee to Genesis and confess it as the Lord's Word. His revelation. And if you can't bend your knee to God's revelation in Genesis, then you are not fully bending your knee to Jesus in the Gospels. The title of today's message, Placing the Mythological Shoe on the Right Foot. Placing the Mythological Shoe on the Right Foot. God's Word is not myth. That which opposes God's Word is myth. I could end the sermon there. God's Word is not myth. Everything that opposes God's Word is myth. Let God be true and every man a liar. Thus saith the Lord. What God has declared is the truth. When men stand against it, they are the liars. 100% of the time. Placing the mythological shoe on the right foot matters. It matters. When you place the mythological shoe on Genesis, you have assaulted the foundation of the entire Bible. And anything built on a faulty foundation in time falls. And many men and women, having begun their profession of Christian faith with that faulty foundation, at some point depart from their profession of the faith. Because that house that they built on sand falls. Jesus Christ is the rock. Jesus Christ believed in Genesis. Why? Because he read it? Because he's the God of it. Because he created the heavens and the earth. Because in the beginning, God, Jesus Christ, the preeminent person active in creation, is Jesus. Yes, the Father and the Holy Spirit were active in creation. But throughout Scripture, Jesus the Christ is the preeminent person the God had given credit for creation. As John 1, 3, as Colossians 1, 15-17, as Hebrews 1, attest to. As Isaiah 44, 24, attest to. And thus, we must place the mythological shoe on the right foot. First point, 
The Genesis 1 through 11 is inspired myth, genre, literature, myth. What is that? There are those that say that Genesis 1 through 11 is inspired myth, genre, literature. That's a myth. Thus, one more time, follow with me. The Genesis 1 through 11 is inspired myth, genre, literature, myth. We need to put the myth shoe on the right foot. They have put the myth shoe on Genesis. That's a myth. Let's recognize it as such. Consider 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. It says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And every Christian on the planet, every Christian that will be in heaven, every Christian that is in heaven says, Amen. Amen. Right? That's a non-negotiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. If we allow the atheistic worldview, the naturalistic worldview, the Big Bang cosmology evolution worldview to steal Genesis from us as the foundation of God's word, to steal a literal Adam from us, then we undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the New Testament ties the first Adam together with the second Adam. This is not an optional doctrine, as in Adam all die, as in Adam all die. Who is in Adam? All the sons of Adam. Any sons of Adam here today? Any daughters? Yes, that's all of us. Yesterday, a black Hebrew Israelite asked Kenan, if there were any other brothers at the church? The correct answer to that question is, yes, they're all brothers, because we're all sons of Adam, unless you're a daughter, of course. But as far as the men go, if you're in Christ, you're a brother in Christ spiritually. But if you're in Adam, then in that sense... Your brothers as well. So there's a double yes to that. If, if you're a man, you're a son of Adam. And in one sense, you're, you're brothers. If you're a man of God, born again from above through faith in Christ, then you are most definitely brothers. And so we find, as in Adam, all die. What would the doctrine of evolution do to that? What does theistic evolution do to that? How do you get to mankind through theistic evolution? Millions of years of death lead up to a subhuman being that God breathed His Spirit into and called Adam. And apparently Adam really appreciated bananas, having so recently come from the tree. That is not compatible with the Word of God. Millions of years of death did not produce any organism Billions of years of death did not produce Adam. For as in Adam all die. 
Jesus said, have you not read that he who created the male and female at the beginning? That in the beginning, God created the male and female? That's what Jesus said. And the male he created was Adam, and the female he created was Eve. And when Adam sinned against God and ate of that fruit, all of Adam's prodigy, all of his descendants died in him. Thus, when we are born, we are born dead in sin and trespass, and we must be made alive, which is why Jesus in John 3 said, you must be born again. You must be born of the water, right? Natural childbirth and born of the spirit or you will perish. Because when you're born of the water, when you're born through natural childbirth, your, your mother receives you into her arms and she smiles and looks upon you. But if she's a Christian, she knows she needs to pray for you and she already has been praying for you. She knows she needs to bring the word of God to bear upon you. She knows you must be born again because you've been, spiritually speaking, born dead and you must be made alive. For as an Adam all die, even as in Christ, all shall be made alive. Who's in Christ today? All those who by the grace of God have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit are born again, have repented and confessed Christ as Lord, are in Christ. And all who are in Christ have been made alive. This verse is not a verse to justify universal atonement. It's not all who are in Adam are dead and and now all are in Christ and they're all alive. No, it's all who are in Adam, which is all of the race of Adam, all of mankind. They're all dead. And all who are in Christ, which is not all the race of Adam, all who are in Christ are made alive. They shall be made alive. Christ, the first fruits, and we follow after. And so this doctrine of the fall, this doctrine of death, this doctrine of Adam, this person, Adam, and this person, Christ, are tied together theologically. And the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and victory over death on behalf of all those who are in Christ, it's tied together to a literal Adam, a literal Christ, a literal death, a literal resurrection, a literal Adam, and a literal death for Adam and all who descended from Adam. You cannot make Adam here in 1 Corinthians 15 a myth and maintain Jesus as a reality. Again, in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. Does that sound like a myth? Does the Apostle Paul, inspired of the Spirit of God, sound like he's describing a Genesis myth? No. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Again, intrinsically tied together, inseparable. One man through whom death came, and one man through whom life came. If the first man is a myth, what's that do to the second man? Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. 
the Genesis 1 through 11 is inspired myth genre literature is a myth. A pastor whose name I will leave off, to be kind, you wouldn't know him anyway, a pastor of the church of the Nazarene holds this Genesis is mythological genre literature position. And he defends it with the following article. He says, in the aftermath of my review of the Bill Nye versus Ken Ham debate, I've been explaining why a pastor is not a six-day creationist. Now notice what compelled him. The profound wisdom of Bill Nye versus Ken Ham compelled him to write this article explaining why a pastor is not a six-day creationist. He goes on, I reject young earth creationism, not because I have any expertise in science, I most assuredly don't, but because I don't read Genesis 1-11 through as a historical scientific account of the creation of the world. Now, I ask you, what could possibly justify not reading Genesis 1-11 through as a historical scientific account of the creation of the world? When Jesus Christ read Genesis as a literal account of the creation of the world. When the Apostle Paul read Genesis as a literal account of the creation of the world, when Jesus believed in a literal Adam and Eve, when Paul believed in a literal Adam and Eve, what could possibly compel you from the Word of God to reject a literal Genesis as historical, scientific, factual account? Nothing except Bill Nye, which is sad. He goes on to read those texts that way, as young earth creationists do, is to misread these texts, to read them through the lens of our modern culture rather than their original audience would have read them. The goal for Christians who live in the modern world and read this ancient collection of texts is to learn how to think like our ancient fathers and mothers. We don't want to assume the Bible is written for us. It was written for them, and they preserved it for us. Okay, I'm thinking that Jesus has a pretty good take on how to interpret the Bible. Since He's the God that carried out Genesis 1-11. through I'm thinking Jesus, who sent the Holy Spirit, Jesus, who is one with the Holy Spirit, who inspired all of the inscripturated text, has a pretty good take on how to interpret Genesis. I'm thinking Paul, the apostle, indwelt by the Spirit of God and only superseded by Luke, And that's not commonly known, but if you actually do a word count, Luke is wordier than Paul. Paul has more books, but Luke's are longer. I mean, he wrote the first history of the church, so he had a lot of things to say. The Apostle Paul was used of the Lord mightily under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to put pen to page to deliver to us the inscripturated revelation of God. And the Apostle Paul uplifts a literal genesis as a factual account. And so we trust the Scripture's analogy of the faith, Scripture's interpretation of Scripture. The first principle of biblical interpretation is not, what do modern literature scientists say? 
What do modern literature experts say? What do even Hebrew language literature experts say? The first question of interpretation is, what does the Bible say about the Bible? What does God say about what God said? If you'll notice in many of your Bibles, either in the margin or in a center reference or at the bottom of the page, or in the very least in the back, somewhere there are cross-references. Why are those in there? Just to satisfy your curiosity? No, to let you know what God has said about that topic, about that historic event elsewhere, to help you cross-reference, to help you understand what Scripture means. That's why those cross-references are there. First principle of interpretation, what did God say about what God said? I don't really care what Matthew Henry said, or John Calvin said, or, or John Wycliffe said, or Luther said, or some modern Bible scholar said, compared to what God says about God's Word. And so there we go, to see what God said. And what we see in Scripture is a consistent testimony from begin, beginning to end that the inspired authors of Scripture believed Genesis to be a literal historical account and all the people in it to be literal historical people and all the events in it to be literal historical events. And thus we receive that testimony gladly and humbly and do not bow before the intellect and glory of Bill Nye, but bow before the intellect and glory of God in his word. This pastor continues, the implications are, he says, if Genesis 1 isn't historical, then is any part of the Bible trustworthy? The implication that Genesis 1 can only be read historically, scientifically, that if we say that creation didn't happen the way Genesis 1 says it happened, then we're undermining the authority and trustworthiness of not only Genesis, but also the whole Bible. Obviously, I don't hold to that idea. The Bible is authoritative for me, and Genesis is one of my favorite texts and the foundation of much of my theology, even though I don't read it historically slash scientifically. You should laugh. That statement is foolish at best. He continues, non-historical doesn't mean untrue. These conversations often begin something like, how do we know what's historical and what's just myth or poem? The underlying assumption is that if a text is historically accurate, then it's more reliable, more truthful, or more important than something mythic or poetic. Yes. Yes, generally speaking. He goes on to say, So if Genesis 1, or the story of Jonah, or Elijah's showdown at Mount Carmel isn't a historical text, that doesn't automatically mean it's unimportant or unspiritual. If Genesis 1 is a myth, if Jonah is a myth, if Elijah's showdown at Mount Carmel is a myth, then frankly, it's all a myth. And let's go bowling. And any so-called pastor saying Genesis 1 can be dismissed as a myth, Jonah can be dismissed as a myth. What did Jesus say about Jonah? As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so I'll be in the belly of the earth, or so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Again, tying the factual, historic person and events in Jonah's life to himself. 
and his authenticity. As the Christ who would suffer, die, be buried and resurrected on the third day. And why in the world would we decide Elijah's showdown at, at Mount Carmel is myth? We, we can't let God pour wrath from heaven on blasphemous false prophets. We, we can't let God pour fire down upon an altar. What, what is it that would compel us? No, 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 no. God's way too nice to bring judgment upon false prophets. No, no, no. God's way too nice to burn up you know, a perfectly good pot roast on the altar. What, what is compelling us to throw Elijah's showdown at Mount Carmel in the mythological genre with Jonah and Genesis? It's wicked. Again, it's audacious. It's arrogant. No pastor, no so-called pastor that does this to Scripture is worthy of the term. He is not called. He is not equipped. He is not qualified. It continues. So if Genesis 1 or the story of Jonah or Elijah's showdown at Mount Carmel isn't a historical text, that doesn't automatically mean it's unimportant or unspiritual. More to the point, God can work through any genre of literature to communicate salvific truth. Let me sum him up with this. At the end of his article, he says, what's at stake for Christians in this argument is the authority and reliability of the Bible. Amen! Why does he say that, though? Because his mind and his heart are subjugated to Big Bang cosmology and evolution. Science is his God. Science defines truth, not God. Knowledge, falsely so-called. Knowledge, profane and idle babblings, define his truth, not God. Therefore, if there's a conflict between God's clear revelation and false knowledge, profane and idle babblings, then God must bow. He must bow. Therefore, we're done with Genesis 1 through 11. We're done with Jonah. We're done with Elijah at Mount Carmel. And I have no doubt we're done with much more once we start with the magic sharpie. What's at stake for Christians in this argument is the authority and reliability of the Bible. Yes and amen. And if you embrace this pastor's position, you have a Bible that is not authoritative. It's not inspired. It's not inerrant. It's not preserved. It's not the Word of God. It is myth. If Genesis is myth, it's myth. He continues, My particular denomination, the Church of the Nazarene, holds the position that the Bible is wholly without error in all matters regarding salvation. If that is the actual position of the Church of the Nazarene, then it should be emptied out. Because they do not believe God's Word is inspired, inerrant, and preserved. They have completely bowed to the world, and yet they're trying to hold on to Jesus' feet. Jesus doesn't want their hands on His feet if their hearts aren't beneath Him too. If their minds aren't beneath Him too. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Oh, but we hold on to the salvific stuff. Yeah, we, we still believe Jesus died and rose again. Just everything He tied to that, like Jonah, like Adam, that's myth. And again, I showed you last week that most people who hold this position on Genesis and Jonah and Elijah at Mount Carmel 
most of these same people reject a literal hell. They reject God's judgment being poured out on sinners in hell. They just won't submit to God anywhere. Their mind is wiser than God's everywhere. Placing the mythological shoe on the right foot. First, the Genesis 1-11 through is inspired myth genre literature myth. We have dismissed that as myth. Let it remain in the myth dustbin forever. Pastor John MacArthur in his book, The Battle for the Beginning, lays out many truths that show the Genesis 1-11 through is inspired myth, genre, literature, myth. The religion or faith or myth of naturalism drives the attack on Genesis 1-11. through Naturalism is a faith, it is a religion, it is a myth. And that's what's driving these assaults on Genesis. Pastor MacArthur says, thanks to the theory of evolution, naturalism is now the dominant religion of modern society. Less than a century and a half ago, Charles Darwin popularized the credo for this secular religion with his book, The Origin of the Species. Although most of Darwin's theories about the mechanisms of evolution were discarded long ago, the doctrine of evolution itself has managed to achieve the status of fundamental article of faith in the popular modern mind. In other words, it is fundamental truth, bedrock truth. If you don't believe that, something is wrong with you. You're a madman. He continues, Naturalism has now replaced Christianity as the main religion of the Western world, and evolution has become naturalism's principal dogma. Naturalism is the view that every law and every force operating in the universe is natural rather than moral, spiritual, or supernatural. Naturalism is inherently anti-theistic, rejecting the very concept of a personal God. Many assume naturalism, therefore, has nothing to do with religion. In fact, it is a common misconception that naturalism embodies the very essence of scientific objectivity. Naturalists themselves like to portray their system as a philosophy that stands in opposition to all faith-based worldviews, pretending that it is scientifically and intellectually superior precisely because of its supposed non-religious character. Not so. Religion is exactly the right word to describe naturalism. The entire philosophy is built on a faith-based premise. Its basic presupposition, a rejection of everything supernatural, requires a giant leap of faith. Do you get that? How could you possibly reject all supernatural? Unless what? Unless you know all. You would have to know all. You would have to have traveled the cosmos. You would have to have traveled all you know, other potential realms of being and existence, spiritual, physical, whatever. All those verses, for you comic book readers, the multiverses, they can't possibly rule out God, the supernatural being, meaning He's not natural. He didn't just come into being through natural processes. He's not sustained by natural means. They cannot rule out God, but yet they do, and they do so by faith. Pastor MacArthur continues, Its basic presupposition, a rejection of everything supernatural, requires a giant leap of faith, and nearly all of its supporting doctrines must be taken by faith as well. Consider the dogma of evolution, for example, 
The notion that natural evolutionary processes can account for the origin of all living species has never been and never will be established as fact, nor is it scientific, nor is it true knowledge, true science, nor is it scientific in any true sense of the word. Science deals with what can be observed and reproduced by experimentation. Naturalism cannot be established by science. Science deals with what can be observed and reproduced by experimentation. The origin of life can be neither observed nor reproduced in any laboratory. By definition, then, true science can give us no knowledge whatsoever about where we came from or how we got here. Belief in evolutionary theory is a matter of sheer faith. And dogmatic belief in any naturalistic theory is no more scientific than any other kind of religious faith. Modern naturalism is often promulgated with a missionary zeal that has powerful religious overtones. The popular fish symbol many Christians put on their cars now has a naturalist counterpart. You've all seen it. A fish with feet and the word Darwin embossed into its side. My geology 101 professor, I've told you many times, at secular college, my Darwin or my Darwin, my geology 101 professor, he was a Darwin 101 professor, Freudian slip there. I don't ascribe to Freud either. (laughs) Disclaimer upon disclaimer upon disclaimer. The geology 101 professor wore in his lab coat every day that Darwin fish. And his whole goal in geology 101 and every other class he taught was to assault the Word of God. It wasn't to teach geology. It wasn't to teach natural sciences. It was to assault the Word of God. In Geology 101, he opened the Bible. And you know what he said? He said, Jesus said, Have you not read that in the beginning God made them male and female? Therefore, Jesus cannot be God because of Big Bang cosmology because of evolution, because of the so-called facts of Big Bang cosmology and evolution, Jesus cannot be God because Jesus clearly, unarguably, believed in a literal Adam and Eve who were made at the beginning. He was half right. Jesus literally, unarguably, believed in a literal Adam and Eve made at the beginning. Only Jesus wasn't wrong. He's right. Only Jesus isn't myth, and Adam and Eve aren't myth, and creation isn't myth. Big Bang cosmology and evolution are myth. Putting the mythological shoe on the right foot. His whole mission was not to teach geology. He was a missionary for naturalism, for evolution, for atheism. And I'm glad I sat under him because I got to defend the faith. Praise God effectively. He took an hour and a half to assault Scripture in Geology 101 to specifically undermine the deity of Christ. And so after the hour and a half, I raised my hand and I said, Professor Dorset, this is Geology 101, not Theology 101, and certainly not Anti-Theism 101 or Anti-Christ 101. You've taken an hour and a half of our time to do so. I request equal time to defend Christ and the Bible. And he granted it with a smile. He granted it. And so we took a break. It was a three-hour evening class, and we all came back, and the class was excited. You know why? 
Not one of them were Christians. I was the only Christian in the class. But he had so shoved Big Bang cosmology, evolution, and antichrist doctrine down their throats, they were ready to vomit it forth. And by God's grace throughout the entire class for months, I'd been taking notes and then countering the notes. Taking notes and countering the notes. I got an A++ in the class. I got everything he taught. I just rejected it all. And I had been doing so in my notes the entire time. So I was ready to stand and speak. And praise God, he gave that opportunity. And at the end, they cheered. I don't know that any got saved. Pray the Lord used it. Maybe one day they did. But the Lord gave that opportunity there. Saints, the truth can stand in the light of day, but you must stand. You must stand. Was I afraid? Oh, yeah. That was Dr. Dorset in his lab coat with his Darwin fish. I didn't have a Jesus fish. I didn't have a white coat. I wasn't a doctor. I just got out of the Marine Corps. I'm a Christian with a Bible. Going to college. I thought secular college, but apparently it's anti-theistic college. Oh, that is secular college. (laughs) So again, this worldview, this naturalism, this Big Bang cosmology, this evolution, it is anti-God and it is evangelistic. It is spreading the good news of atheism. The good news that there is no God. All things can be explained through natural process. Pastor MacArthur continues, The internet has become naturalism's busiest mission field where evangelists for the cause aggressively try to deliver benighted souls who are still clinging to their theistic presuppositions. Judging from the tenor of some of the material I've read, seeking to win converts to naturalism, naturalists are often dedicated to their faith with a devout passion that rivals or easily exceeds the fanaticism of any radical religious zealot. Naturalism is clearly as much a religion as any theistic worldview. Carl Sagan would be chief amongst them, a renowned astronomer and media figure. Sagan was overtly antagonistic to biblical theism, but he became the chief televangelist for the religion of naturalism. He is pretty much, if you have any kind of cable thing, pretty much on 24-7, spreading the good news of atheism, the good news of naturalism, 24-7, right now. He preached a worldview that was based entirely on naturalistic assumptions. Underlying all he taught was the firm conviction that everything in the universe has a natural cause and a natural explanation. That belief A matter of fact, not truly scientific observation, governed and shaped every one of his theories about the universe. Sagan examined the vastness and complexity of the universe and concluded, as he was bound to do, given his starting point, that there is nothing greater than the universe itself. So he borrowed divine attributes such as infinitude, eternality, and omnipotence, and he made them properties of the universe itself which is exactly what Romans 1 talks about. Instead of worshiping the Creator, they worship the creation. Carl Sagan's trademark statement is this, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. That sums up the naturalistic worldview. The cosmos is all that there is, all that ever was, all that there ever will be. The statement itself is clearly a tenet of faith not a scientific conclusion. Neither Sagan himself nor all the scientists in the world combined could ever examine all that is or ever was or ever will be by any scientific method. 
Sagan's slogan is perfectly illustrative of how modern naturalism mistakes religious dogma for true science. Thus, 1 Timothy 6.20, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge is perfectly applied to naturalism and all that flows beneath it. Pastor MacArthur continues, Sagan's religion included the belief that the human race is nothing special. What are the philosophical ramifications of naturalism, Big Bang, cosmology, and evolution? It's that humanity is nothing special. Given the incomprehensible vastness of the universe and the impersonality of it all, how could humanity possibly be important? Sagan concluded that our race is not significant at all. In December of 1996, less than three weeks before Sagan died, he was interviewed by Ted Koppel on Nightline. Sagan knew he was dying, and Koppel asked him, Dr. Sagan, do you have any pearls of wisdom that you would like to give to the human race? He's dying. Here's his answer. We live on a hunk of rock and metal that circles a humdrum star that is one of 400 billion other stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of the billions of other galaxies which make up the universe, which may be one of the very large number, perhaps an infinite number of other universes. That is perspective on human life and our culture that is well worth pondering. Do you get what he's saying? We are an insignificant nothing. Human life is nothing. Culture is nothing. It's all meaningless. It has no purpose, no meaning, no value. It's an accident. It started that way, and it will end that way. That's what he's saying. That's the ramification. That's the end of the naturalistic worldview. Pastor MacArthur continues, in a book published... Near the end of his life, Sagan wrote, quote, Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. It's a worldview of despair. Although Sagan resolutely tried to maintain a semblance of optimism to the bitter end, his religion led where all naturalism inevitably leads to a sense of utter insignificance and despair. According to his worldview, humanity occupies a tiny outpost, a pale blue speck in a vast sea of galaxies. As far as we know, we are unnoticed by the rest of the universe, accountable to no one, and petty and irrelevant in a cosmic so expansive... It is fatuous to talk of outside help or redemption for the human race. No help is forthcoming. It would be nice if we somehow managed to solve some of our problems, but whether we do or not will ultimately be forgotten as a bit of cosmic trivia. That, said Sagan, is a perspective well worth pondering. MacArthur continues, All of this underscores the spiritual barrenness of naturalism. The naturalist religion erases all moral and ethical accountability. Pastor John MacArthur writes, One of Darwin's earliest champions, Thomas Huxley, gave a lecture in 1893 in which he argued that evolution and ethics are incompatible. He wrote that, quote, The practice of that which is ethically best, what we call goodness or virtue, involves a course of conduct which in all respects is opposed 
to that which leads to success in the cosmic struggle for existence. In other words, it is contrary to survival of the fittest. Therefore, it is wrong. Pastor MacArthur continues, Karl Marx, for example, self-consciously followed Darwin in the devising of his economic and social theories. He inscribed a copy of his book, Das Kapital, to Darwin from a devoted admirer. He referred to Darwin's Origin of Species as the book which contains the basis of natural history for our view. And so Karl Marx built his theories, his social theories, on Darwinian evolution on the origin of species. And he personally thanked Charles Darwin and gave him credit where credit was due. Herbert Spencer's philosophy of social Darwinism applied the doctrines of evolution and the survival of the fittest to human society. Spencer argued that if nature itself is determined that the strong survive and the weak perish, this rule should govern society as well. That'll be fun. Savage. That's what that is. And that's what we're becoming as we embrace naturalism. We are naturally becoming savage. Racial and class distinctions simply reflect nature's way. There is therefore no transcendent moral reason to be sympathetic to the struggle of the disadvantaged classes. It is, after all, part of the natural evolutionary process, and society will actually be improved by recognizing the superiority of the dominant classes and encouraging their ascendancy. So, oppress the weak. It's good for all. It's good for the species. Of course, in a naturalistic worldview, what does it matter what's good for a species? What does any species matter on an insignificant speck, in an insignificant solar system, in an insignificant galaxy, amongst billions of galaxies, amongst potentially billions of universes, in the multiverse? Now, that's not been proven, mind you, the multiverse thing. But that's where they're going in their speculations. Continues, there is therefore no transcendent moral reason to be sympathetic to the struggle of disadvantaged classes. The racialism of such writers as Ernest Heckel, who believed that the African races were incapable of culture or higher mental development, was also rooted in Darwinism. What's interesting is all the hyper-woke, uh, racially sensitive leftists out there that ascribe to Charles Darwin, they don't realize that Charles Darwin was a racist and a severe misogynist, and yet they champion him and build their worldview on his lie, his myth. MacArthur continues, Frederick Nietzsche's whole philosophy was based on the doctrine of evolution. Nietzsche was bitterly hostile to religion and particularly to Christianity. Christian morality embodied the essence of everything Nietzsche hated. He believed Christ's teachings glorified human weakness and were detrimental to the development of the human race. He scoffed at Christian moral values such as humility, mercy, modesty, meekness, compassion for the powerless and service to one another. He believed such ideals had bred weakness in society. Nietzsche saw two types of people, the master class, an enlightened dominant minority, and the herd, sheep-like followers who were easily led. And he concluded that the only hope for humanity would be when the master class evolved into a uber-minskin, a superman race, unencumbered by religious or social mores who would take power and bring humanity to the next stage of its evolution. It's not surprising that Nietzsche's philosophy laid the foundation for the Nazi movement in 
Germany. What is surprising is that the dawn of the 21st century, Nietzsche's reputation has been rehabilitated by philosophical spin doctors, and his writings are once again trendy in the academic world. Indeed, his philosophy, or something very nearly like it, is what naturalism must inevitably return to. This is the fruit of naturalism, the fruit of Big Bang cosmology and Darwinism, and it is rotten to the core. All the philosophical fruits of Darwinism have been negative, ignoble, and destructive to the very fabric of society. Not one of the major 20th century revolutions led by post-Darwinian philosophies ever improved or ennobled any society. Instead, the chief social and political legacy of Darwinian thought is a full spectrum of evil tyranny, with Marx-inspired communism at one extreme and Nietzsche-inspired fascism at the other. The moral catastrophe that has disfigured modern Western society is also directly traceable to Darwinism and the rejection of the early chapters of Genesis. We've come full circle. Full circle. What is shocking and deeply troubling is that these doctrines have been brought into Christ's church. Pastor MacArthur writes, As humanity enters the 21st century, an even more frightening prospect looms. Now even the church seems to be losing the will to defend what Scripture teaches about human origins. Many in the church are too intimidated or too embarrassed to affirm the literal truth of the biblical account of creation. They are confused by a chorus of authoritative-sounding voices who insist that it is possible and even pragmatically necessary to reconcile Scripture with the latest theories of the naturalists. Dear saints, it is not necessary. Much more, it is wicked to reconcile naturalism, a godless worldview, an atheistic worldview, and its false sciences, Big Bang cosmology and evolution and all its forms, it is wicked to reconcile that with Genesis because there is no reconciliation. Any attempt to reconcile that with Genesis does what? Wipes Genesis out. Makes Genesis myth. Placing the mythological shoe on the right foot. The mythological shoe belongs on the foot of naturalism, Big Bang cosmology and evolution not on Genesis, not on the Word of God. It is impossible to make peace with naturalism, Big Bang cosmology and evolution, and the Word of God. Your Lord Jesus Christ has no peace with naturalism, Big Bang cosmology, or evolution, and you can't either. It is waging war on Him. As we love Jesus, we will wage war on it. Let's pray.